Amen. Good morning. It is an immense privilege to be here. Um, I consider it a great honor for Zeb to be willing to share this pulpit with me this morning. Um, it, it really is a privilege each time I get to open God's Word and share it with His people. And I spent some time with some members of this church uh, over dinner last night. And one of the testimonies I kept hearing over and over again is that you all are a people hungry for the Word. And uh, I don't know a better testimony that could be born about the people of God than that they are hungry for His Word. And uh, so if you are hungry, let's turn together to Judges chapter 13. Judges is the seventh book of the Old Testament. Okay, so you're looking in the first half of your Bible. And we're going to be in chapter 13. Maybe uh, from Sunday school or vacation Bible school or from your own reading, you know this, but Judges is famous for its seven cycles of sin. Seven cycles of sin. Uh, Basically, the book of Judges is one long narrative of how God's people failed in the same way over and over and over again. I remember I had a seminary professor, Dr. Pennington, and he was giving some instruction to young preachers about how best to approach biblical narrative, because really 75% of the Bible is story. And the book of Judges itself is one long narrative. And here's what he used to say. When you're preaching narratives, two-thirds of your sermon should be consumed simply with a dramatic retelling of the story. Two-thirds of the sermon just consumed with reading and explaining, and delighting in the story. Line by line, frame by frame, scene by scene. Which seems kind of wasteful. I I mean, couldn't we all just go home and read Judges chapter 13 for ourselves? And really, the valuable thing is not this, but the the kernels of truth that I, as a pastor, can, you know, collect in my study and then dispense out to you from this pulpit, right? And then we discard the husk. Hopefully, you understand I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here, but you know what? Often, this isn't just the way we approach our sermons. This is often the way we approach the way we read God's Word during the week open my Bible, gather a few nuggets of wisdom for my day, maybe post a few inspirational quotes to my socials, and get on with the day. And if I don't come away from God's Word with any nuggets, then really it's been a waste of time. Brothers and sisters, is God's Word only valuable for what we can get out of it? In just a moment, we're going to read a story about two people who spent quality face-to-face time with the Lord Himself and came away from that time totally afraid that they might die. But God was saving them. And just like Manoah and his wife, here we are about to have an encounter with God's Word 
Not simply for me to come up here, you know, serve up a, a couple of nuggets for you to take home with you to inspire you this week. In fact, we may walk away from this passage this morning feeling encouraged and believing. Or we may walk away from our encounter with God's Word this morning dismayed and confused. But one thing remains true. God is in the act of saving us. So let us allow the Spirit to sow the kernels wherever He will. Let's you and I be in this together this morning. And we'll trust that as we hear the words of our Lord, no matter how they may feel in this moment, we will choose to believe that these words are not a sign of our destruction, but of our salvation. Well, Judges 13, you've probably seen there the heading at the top of the chapter. This is the beginning of the story of perhaps one of, if not the most famous character in all of the Old Testament, the birth narrative of Samson. Back in chapter 10 was the last time that God's people fell into sin. It was the sixth cycle. It says they did evil. God sold them into the hands of the Ammonites. The people cried out to God, and interestingly, this time, God says, you know what? Enough is enough. We know how this story is going to end. I'm done saving you. Good luck. And rather than receiving that as, wow, we've really sunk low, we need to be truly repentant this time, the people just move on to plan B. And they find a savior for themselves, a man named Jephthah, who ends up slaughtering tens of thousands of Israelites by the end of his career, including his own child. If God wasn't going to send the savior they asked for, they would find one for themselves and we see how that salvation ends up in chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. Last night I was just reviewing this passage in preparation for this morning, and I was struck by that word in verse 1 again. In fact, you read it in Hebrew, that's the first word of the chapter. Again. I wonder, show of hands here, if that word describes your life this week. Again, I did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I sinned again. Praise God, this story is here this morning to show us what happens to people like us. Right back in the hole. The people again did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines and we hit the recycle, the repeat button for the seventh and final time in the book of Judges. One cycle of sin for every wicked nation the people of Israel were supposed to expel out of the promised land. God's people were supposed to wipe the land clean and then fill it with righteousness and good deeds and God's justice. But here we are seven cycles later and the land is filled with the same sin and disobedience that was there before Israel came. In fact, at Judges 13, we've arrived at a place where God's people look exactly like the people they were meant to replace. 
just like the Canaanites. We've officially hit rock bottom because something is different in cycle seven from cycles one, two, three, four, five, and six. Six times before, the people realize they're in trouble and they cry out to God to deliver them. But this time, the people don't even bother to cry out for help. Israel has given up on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Forty years they're enslaved to the Philistines. This is double the length of time of any other oppression in the book of Judges. God's people have sunk so deep in sin, they are simply content to live in it indefinitely. Is God worried? Nope. In fact, this is the moment that God has been waiting for because when God's people hit rock bottom, when they are so enslaved to sin, they don't even bother to cry out for salvation, He can finally, He can finally send them the Savior they never asked for. And that's where the story of Samson begins in verse 2. Let's read it together. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Verse 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Let's pause in our story here now. I want us to flip back to Judges chapter 1 real quick, verse 34. I don't want to assume everyone's read the book of Judges. If you have not, some of the most exciting and bizarre stories you will find not just in the Bible, but in all of literature. So you're missing out. Judges chapter 1 is the story of how each tribe went and conquered the land they were supposed to conquer based on the allotments Joshua had given. So he said, you guys, this is your property, this is your land, you guys go to conquer those peoples. And so we get each tribe going, and it's sort of a, a list of how well they did. And so we go through all 12 tribes, and who falls at the very end the tribe of Dan, and let's hear how much success they had in conquering the land that was given to them by God. Verse 34. And the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. So how much success did the Danites have? Zero. In fact, they didn't even make it down to the battlefield. They were so afraid, they decided, we'll just live in the caves in the mountains. You guys stay where you're at. Just don't bother us. They were the absolute least successful. They conquered nothing. They were conquered and were forced to live in the mountains. Of course, of course, this is the tribe God chooses to use. And not only that, he's chosen a barren woman from the tribe of Dan. Barren woman from a barren tribe 
among a barren people. This is a situation only God could redeem. Perfect. So God sends the angel of the Lord. She tells the woman that she will, in fact, conceive and bear a son. And he gives specific instructions. Do not drink wine. Do not drink strong drink. Don't eat anything unclean. And thirdly, and famously, do not cut the child's hair. Verse 5. Because the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Perhaps you've heard that term before, Nazarite. A Nazarite is somebody who is set apart for a lifetime or for even a short season for some specific purpose of the Lord. Verse, uh, chapter 6 of Numbers, you can go and read about the instructions for a Nazarite. It says, a Nazarite, all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And what is this holy purpose that this child is going to be set apart for? To begin to save Israel from the hand of of the Philistines. Here he is. The Savior that God's people didn't even bother to ask for. Verse 6. Let's skip back to Judges 13, verse 6. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now, we might be tempted, we read these verses and we're kind of like, okay, get on with the story, we heard all of this before. But the thing is, is whenever the Bible repeats itself... It's probably something important. I mean, usually when you repeat yourself, it's because it's something you really want someone to remember, right? I'm not sure why we're in such a hurry anyways. It is God's word after all. Are we wasting our time by reading the same thing twice or three times or four or a dozen times? So when the Bible repeats itself, we should slow down and say something important here. Let's dig into it and see what it is. One of the reasons we speed through these sections of verses is we assume that they're a word-for-word repeat, which is mistake number one. Often when you read in the Old Testament and there's a repetition, the author's repeating it, and he's going to change one subtle detail. And if you're looking for it, it's important. Look at verse 5. Listen to how the angel's message ended. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Okay? For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now look at how the woman recounts the message in verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 8. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Brothers and sisters, this is what we call foreshadowing, okay? It's when the storyteller kind of reveals how things are going to end at the beginning. But you miss it if you just skate on through because you assume everything is a total repeat. Somehow, this Nazarite will begin to save 
Israel from the hand of the Philistines on the day of his death. The Nazarite cut off, set apart from his own people for God's purposes will somehow be cut off for his people's salvation. Nothing you couldn't have found on your own, right? With just a little careful reading, not allowing ourselves to speed through God's word. Oh, and there's one other interesting omission. When Manoah's wife recounts the instructions of the angel of the Lord, she somehow misses the instruction about cutting the child's hair. Interesting detail to be left out. Well, guys, Manoah, he feels a little left out. Why did this awesome man, angel, God person appear to his wife in the field and he didn't get to have any excitement? And so he starts to boohoo and he speaks to the Lord in verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what, are we, what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman <laughs> as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. You know, once we could chalk up to an accident, but now it seems personal. The angel appears to Manoah's wife, and she's alone for a second time. And you know, this is not the first time in the book of Judges that God has passed over a man to speak through and to work through a woman. You think of Deborah, Judges 4. Or we think of Jael in that same story. You remember her, the woman who drove a tent peg through a pagan general's temple? Or the nameless woman later on who dropped a millstone on the head of wicked Abimelech. And then we have Manoah's wife here. Almost like women play a major part in God's plan for saving the world. Now, I can't recall exactly off the top of my head, but I remember reading this. There's this story in the Bible where there's, you know, all of mankind is trapped in sin, and then God makes this promise about how the seed of a woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. The reference is escaping me, but I feel like it's an important passage in the you know, whole grand story of salvation. So anyways, for whatever reason God may have, he keeps intentionally skipping over Manoah and speaking directly to his wife, who, by the way, is nameless. Verse 10. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Does the angel tell Manoah anything new? This is a very uncooperative angel. 
So Manoah tries another approach. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Verse 21, the angel of the Lord appeared, to, appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. And then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So imagine you and a friend are at a church bonfire. And you turn around to prepare all the s'mores, you know, the grams and the marshmallows and the chocolate. And in your periphery, your friend starts running past you. And as you turn around, you see that friend jump into the fire, disappear in a poof of smoke up into the heavens. That's the experience of this man and his wife as they're standing there by the fire. The angel of the Lord sprints in, jumps into the fire, ascends up into the heavens, and disappears. And all of a sudden, in that moment, Manoah and his wife realize that this man is no mere man. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord and listen to what he says in verse 22. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. So we've got Manoah over here and he's freaking out. And then we have his wife speaking some sense into him. Verse 23, but his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And so the story comes to, to a conclusion, and as it always does, it's amazing how we just assume this. The word of the Lord comes true. Everything he promised happens just as he said. Verse 24, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahane Dan between Zorah and Eshtoel. So here he is, Samson, the Savior no one asked for, is born. If you have read the book of Judges, this morning's story is a bit of a deja vu for us because this has happened before, this whole thing with the angel of the Lord back with Gideon. Angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, sort of has this back and forth repartee with Gideon where he's kind of uh, saying things and speaking out of two sides of his mouth and Gideon doesn't understand. The angel talks to Gideon about saving Israel. Gideon offers bread and a goat on a stone and when the fire is lit, the angel of the Lord vanishes in the flames. 
And Gideon realizes he's seen the Lord face to face, thinks he's going to die, but the Lord speaks peace. It's the same story, just with different characters. Who is this angel that keeps showing up, looking like a man, but actually being God himself? In fact, did you notice in verse 18 that the angel shares the same name with the Lord? His name is Wonderful, the Lord, the Wonder Worker. Pastor Zeb mentioned Advent, and you know, this kind of reminds me of a verse from Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful. Who is this God-man whose name is Wonderful, who comes speaking words of salvation and peace to God's people? It is none other than the Son of God Himself. Jesus Christ, our Lord. There are only a dozen or so places in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord appears. We find him speaking to Hagar in the wilderness. He appears to Abraham when he's about to sacrifice Isaac. He appears to Moses at the burning bush, and we already mentioned Gideon. And then he appears to Manoah and his wife here in Judges 13, two insignificant and barren people in a barren tribe, among a barren Israel. And when they offer up goat and some grain as an offering on a rock, this angel does a strange thing. He jumps into the fire and becomes a sacrifice. God the Son, Jesus Himself, jumping into the fire, becoming a sacrifice and ascending into the heavens. Brothers and sisters, this is what we call foreshadowing. Look again at the words of Manoah's wife in verse 23. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. Which offering was accepted? The goat and the grain? Yes. And the other offering one day would be accepted as well. The angel of the Lord told them that Samson would begin to save God's people. And as Manoah and his wife looked into that fire and saw the angel of the Lord ascending back into heaven, they were looking at the one who would finish saving the people of God. Well, let's shift gears here and let's talk for a few minutes about what we've read together. Uh, I'm sure we have some Chick-fil-A fans in here, so I don't want us to feel like this is an anti-nugget atmosphere, okay? We do have some great nuggets we can walk away with this morning. We're not anti-nugget. So here are three things that you can ponder in your hearts as we consider this passage together. And really, we're just going to look at each of the characters, Samson, Manoah, and Manoah's wife. Samson really only appears in the final two verses of this chapter, but wouldn't it be great to know that before you were born, God had a plan for your life? 
that before you were even conceived, the Lord knew exactly His purpose for you. And wouldn't it be amazing if God sent His Spirit to actually dwell inside of you so that you would accomplish everything that He had foreordained for you to do? Brothers and sisters, He has. Psalm 139, all the days ordained for you and me were written in His book before even one of them came to be. Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has no accidental creatures. There are no non-playable characters in God's universe. By His Spirit, God has set each and every one of you apart for His plan. And your job is Samson's job. We hear that question, what is to be my manner of life? What is to be my mission? I bet a lot of you have asked God that very question this week. Your job is not to discern God's plan. Your job is not to make sure you don't mess up what God has planned for you. Your job is not to be paralyzed with fear that maybe you're going to ruin everything that He has orchestrated. I mean, do you know the story of Samson? There is no one who could more intentionally try to escape and destroy the plan of God. And yet in the end, did he begin to save God's people at his death? If Samson, doing everything to disobey and distrust God, still accomplished all God's purposes... What have we got to worry about? Our job is to trust and obey. Trust and obey. Leave the plan to God. Let's you and I follow Jesus. Our second character, Manoah. Let's look at him for a brief minute. God intervenes into his life and throws everything into disarray. He's jealous, he's proud, confused, afraid. He asks God for extra messages, even though the first ones were perfectly clear. He's running around trying to serve up things to persuade God, maybe to like him more. Here, God, here's some extra church attendance, and I put more on the offering plate, and I've read my Bible five times this week. I sin less this week. Did you see how nice I was to that homeless person? God, please like me. Please don't strike me dead. And even when the angel does come back and God does answer every single one of his prayers and receives his offering and the angel goes back up into heaven, Manoah interprets all of those things as a Las Vegas-style neon-flashing sign saying this, God is out to kill you. And before we look too harshly on the disbelief of Manoah, I would wager that we all have something going on in our life this week that is causing us to question God. If God really loved me, why would He do this to me? How can God be truly merciful and put me through this if His plan really is for my salvation and not my destruction Why is he letting me walk through this thing that seems to be tearing me apart? 
I can't trust him. God can't be good. He can't be unswervingly merciful. He can't be love because I know that the moment I turn my back on God and leave him alone, that's going to be the moment when he strikes me dead. When the circumstances of our lives are frustrating and dismaying and confusing, we can choose to believe that all of these things are clear evidence that God is at war with us. Or we can choose to believe that despite all of our own fear and faithfulness, God is making peace with us. Which God will you choose to believe in this day? Manoah's version of God. Or the one who testifies about himself using the words we've already heard this morning. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But what of Manoah's wife? She's our third and final character this morning. We can harden our, heart against, our hearts against the Lord like Manoah, or we can receive the testimony of his own wife into our own lives. She experienced the exact circumstances, the exact same ones as her husband, and interpreted them in the exact opposite way. Rather than believing their signs of God's judgment, verse 23, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he wouldn't have given us this. He wouldn't have sent his son to die on a cross and to be raised for our justification. Why would he have wasted his time in filling us with his spirit if his intentions for your life were to just destroy you? When it came down to it, the barren one was the one who was ready to believe. In fact, she's given no other name in this passage than barren. And she's the one who has eyes to see the face of God and live. The church is filled with people who have no other name in this world than these. Barren, destitute, burnt over, lost cause. And the temptation can be after the years have passed, we might doubt that God has left us destitute for so long We've resented God for all those years. We can no longer cling to the hope that God might actually be saving us all those years. It seems impossible after all we've experienced that God could actually love us. The encouragement of this barren woman to us this morning is this. Do not lose heart. It's the barren one that Jesus has come to save. It's to the barren people that the Father has sent a Savior. It is the barren land that God plans to make forever fruitful. So let us not lose heart. May we trust 
and obey. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for stories with characters that look just like us, with fears and failures and faithlessness that hits way too close to home. And we thank you, God, that you are not waiting for us to ask for you to send a Savior. In fact, it's in the moment when your people had given up hope that you send the Savior we never asked for. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are working in our midst, not for our destruction. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see the circumstances and what looks like failure in our lives, the things that dismay us and cause us to fear. May we see these things and interpret them as signs and wonders that the wonderful one, the wonder worker, is at work to save us from his eternal throne where he has ascended and has all power to accomplish every purpose for our eternal good. So help us when we can't discern your plan to trust you and to simply follow you, Lord Jesus. Help us to trust and obey. It's in your name we trust and pray this morning. Amen.